Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Knows. My name is Chris, and uh, this is a podcast where I just read things. Um, I am waiting for a book that uh, I read the first chapter in one of a, a previous episode. The book was called The Untethered Soul. I didn't own the book. I just read the first chapter um, and decided to go ahead and go for it. So you will be seeing that book here pretty soon. It should be here by tomorrow or, or the next day. So stay tuned. We'll have that book going on. It's, so far, it's a good book. That first chapter was pretty amazing. Um, and we're just going to keep going going with that one too. Um, so I've got a couple books going, a couple more uh, interesting articles to read here coming up. And uh, so, yeah, enjoy. We are right back into Ethics for the New Millennium by the Dalai Lama, Chapter 5, which is titled The Supreme Emotion. On a recent trip to Europe, I took the opportunity to visit the site of the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. Even though I had heard and read a great deal about this place, I found myself completely unprepared for the experience. My initial reaction to the sight of the ovens in which hundreds of thousands of human beings were burned was one of total revulsion. I was dumbfounded at the sheer calculation and detachment from feeling to which they bore horrifying testimony. Then in the museum, which forms part of the visitor center, I saw a collection of shoes. A lot of them were patched or small, having obviously belonged to children and poor people. This saddened me particularly. What wrong could they possibly have done? What harm? I stopped and prayed, moved profoundly both for the victims and for the perpetrators of this in iniquity, that such a thing would ever happen again. And in the knowledge that we, that just as we all have their capacity to act selflessly out of the concern for others' well-being, so do we all have the potential to be murderers and torturers. I vowed never in any way to contribute to such a calamity. Events such as those which occurred at Auschwitz are violent reminders of what can happen when individuals, and by extension, whole societies, lose touch with basic human feeling. But although it is necessary to have legislation and international conventions in place as safeguards against future disasters of this kind, we have all seen that atrocities, atrocities continue in spite of them. Much more effective and important than such legislation is our regard for one another's feelings at a simple human level. When I speak of basic human feeling, I am not only thinking of something fleeting and vague, however, I refer to the capacity we all have to empathize with one another, which in Tibetan we call Shen Dug Nao Wal Lami Sopa. Translated literally, this means the inability to bear the sight of another's suffering. Given that this is what enables us to enter into, and to some extent participate in others' pain, it is one of our most significant characteristics. It is what causes us to start at the sound of a cry for help, to recoil at the sight of harm done to another, to suffer when confronted with others' suffering, and it is what compels us to shut our eyes even when we want to ignore others' distress. Here, imagine walking along a road deserted, save for an elderly person just ahead of you, Suddenly, that person trips and falls. What do you do? I have no doubt that the majority of readers would go over to see whether they might need help. Not all, perhaps. But in admitting that not everyone would go to the assistance of another in distress, I do not mean to suggest that in those few exceptions, this capacity for empathy, which I have, said, which I have suggested to be universal, is entirely absent. 
Even in the case of those who did not, surely there will at least be the same feeling, however faint, of concern, which would motivate the majority to offer their assistance. It is certainly possible to imagine people who, after enduring years of warfare, are no longer moved at the sight of others' suffering. The same could be true of those who live in places where there is an atmosphere of violence and indifference to others. It is even possible to imagine a few who would exult at the sight of another's suffering. This does not prove that the capacity for empathy is not present in such people, that we all, excepting perhaps only the most disturbed, appreciate being shown kindness, suggests that however hardened we may have suggests that however hardened we may become, the capacity for empathy remains. This characteristic of appreciating others' concern is, I believe, a reflection of our inability to bear the sight of another's suffering. I say this because alongside our natural ability to empathize with others, we also have a need for others' kindness, which runs like a thread through our, throughout our whole life. It is most apparent when we are young and when we are old, but we have only to fall ill to be reminded of how important it is to be loved and cared about, even during our prime years. Though it may seem a virtue to be able to do without affection, in reality, a life lacking this precious ingredient must be a miserable one. It is surely not a coincidence that the lives of most criminals turn out to have been lonely and lacking in love. We see this appreciation of kindness reflected in our response to the human smile. For me, human beings' ability to smile is one of our most beautiful characteristics. It is something no animal can do, not dogs, well, dogs can, or even whales or dolphins, even each of them very intelligent beings with a clear affinity for humans can smile as we do. Personally, I always feel a bit curious when I smile at someone and they remain serious and unresponding. On the other hand, my heart is gladdened when they reciprocate. Even in the case of someone I have nothing to do with, when that person smiles at me, I am touched. But why? The answer surely is that a genuine smile touches something fundamental in us, our natural appreciation of kindness. Despite the body of opinion suggesting that human nature is basically aggressive and competitive, my own view is that our appreciation for affection and love is so profound that it begins even before our birth. Indeed, according to some scientist friends of mine, there is strong evidence to suggest that a mother's mental and emotional state greatly affects the well-being of her unborn child, that it benefits her baby if she maintains a warm and gentle state of mind. A happy mother bears a happy child. On the other hand, frustration and anger are harmful to the healthy development of the baby. Similarly, during the first few weeks after birth, warmth and affection continue to play a supreme role in the infant's physical development. At this stage, the brain is growing very rapidly, a function which doctors believe is somehow assisted by the constant touch of the mother or surrogate. This shows that though the baby may not know or care who is who, it has a clear physical need of affection. Perhaps, too, it explains why even the most fractious agitated, and paranoid individuals respond positively to the affection and care of others. As infants, they must have been nurtured by someone. Should a baby be neglected during this critical period, clearly it could not survive. Fortunately, this is very rarely the case. Almost without exception, the mother's first act is to offer her baby her nourishing milk, an act which, to me, symbolizes unconditional love. Her affection here is totally genuine and uncalculating. She expects nothing in return. As for the baby, it is drawn naturally to its mother's breast. Why? Of course, we can speak of the survival instant instinct. But in addition, I think it's reasonable to conjecture a degree of affection on the part of the infant towards its mother. If it felt aversion, it surely would not suckle. And if the mother felt aversion, it is doubtful her milk would flow freely.
What we see instead is a relationship based on love and mutual tenderness, which is totally spontaneous. It is not learned from others. No religion requires it. No laws impose it. No schools have taught it. It arises quite naturally. This instinctual care of mother for child, shared it seems with many animals, is crucial because it suggests that alongside the baby's fundamental need of love in order to survive, there exists an innate capacity on the part of the mother to give love. So powerful is it that we might almost suppose a biological component is at work. Of course, it could be argued that this reciprocal love is nothing more than a survival mechanism. That could well be so, but that is not to deny its existence. Nor, indeed, does it undermine my conviction that this need and capacity for love suggests that we are, in fact, loving by nature. If this seems improbable, consider our differing response to kindness and to violence. Most of us find violence intimidating. Conversely, when we are shown kindness, we respond with greater trust. Similarly, consider the relationship between peace, which, as we have seen, is the fruit of love and good health. According to my understanding, our constitution is more suited to peace and tranquility than to violence and aggression. We all know that stress and anxiety can lead to high blood pressure and other negative symptoms. In the Tibetan medical system, mental and emotional disturbances are considered to be a cause of many constitutional diseases, including cancer. Moreover, peace, tranquility, and others' care are essential to, recover from, to recovery from illness. We can also identify a basic longing for peace. Why? Because peace suggests life and growth, whereas violence suggests only misery and death. death. This is why the idea of a pure land or of heaven attracts us. If such a place were described in terms of unending warfare and strife, we would much rather remain in this world. Notice, too, how we respond to the phenomenon of life itself. When spring follows winter, the days become longer. There's more sunshine, the grass grows afresh, automatically our spirits lift. On the other hand, at the approach of winter, the leaves begin to fall one by one, and much of the vegetation around us becomes as though dead. Small wonder if we tend to feel a bit downcast at that time of year. The indication here is surely that our nature prefers life over death, growth over decay, construction over destruction. Consider also the behavior of children. In them we see what is natural to the human character before it has been overlaid with learned ideas. We find that very young babies do not really differentiate between one person and another. They, at they attach much more importance to the smile of people in front of them to than to anything else. Even when they start to grow up, they are not very interested in differences of race, nationality, religion, or family background. When they meet with other children, they do not stop to discuss these things. They immediately begin the much more important business of play. Nor is this just sentimentalism. I see the reality whenever I visit one of the children's villages in Europe, where numbers of Tibetan refugee children have been educated since the early 1960s. These villages were founded to care for orphaned children from countries at war with one another. To no one's great surprise, it was found that despite their different backgrounds, when these children are put together, they live in complete harmony with one another. Now, it could be objected that while we may share a capacity for loving-kindness, human nature is such that inevitably we tend to reserve it for those closest to us. We are biased toward our family and friends. Our feelings of concern for those outside the circle will depend very much on individual circumstances. Those who feel threatened are not likely to have very much goodwill for those who threaten them. All this is true enough. Nor do I deny that whatever our capacity to feel concern for our fellow human beings, when our very nature, when our very survival is threatened, it may but rarely prevail over the instinct for self-preservation. Still, this does not mean that the capacity is no longer there. 
that the potential does not remain. Even soldiers after a battle will often help their enemies retrieve their dead and wounded. In all of what I have said about our basic nature, I do not mean to suggest that I believe it has no negative aspects. Where there is consciousness, hatred, ignorance, and violence, do where there is consciousness, hatred, ignorance, and violence do indeed arise naturally. This is why, although our nature is basically disposed toward kindness and compassion, we are all capable of cruelty and hatred. It is why we have to struggle to better our conduct. It also explains how individuals raised in a strictly nonviolent environment have turned into the most horrible butchers. In connection with this, I recall my visit some years ago to the Washington Memorial, which pays tribute to the martyrs and heroes of the Jewish Holocaust at the hands of the Nazis. What struck me most forcefully about the monument was, it, was its simultaneous cataloging of different forms of human behavior. On one side, it lists the victims of acts of unspeakable atrocity. On the other, it remembers the heroic acts of kindness on the part of the Christian families and others who willingly took terrible risks in order to harbor their Jewish brothers and sisters. I felt that this was entirely appropriate and very necessary to show the two sides of human potential. But the existence of this negative potential does not give us grounds to suppose that human nature is inherently violent or even necessarily disposed towards violence. Perhaps one of the reasons for the popularity of the belief that human nature is aggressive lies in our continual exposure to bad news through the media. Yet the very cause of this is surely that good news is not news. To say that basic human nature is not only nonviolent, but actually disposed toward love and compassion, kindness, gentleness, affection, creation, and so on, does of course imply a general principle which must, by definition, be applicable to each individual human being. What then are we to say about those individuals whose lives seem to be given over wholly to violence and aggression? During the past century alone, there are several obvious examples to consider. What of Hitler and his plan to exterminate the Jewish, the entire Jewish race? What of Stalin and his program, pogroms? What of Charmaine Mao, or Chairman Mao and the man I once knew and admired? What of Chairman Mao, the man I once knew and admired? and the barbarous insanity of the Cultural Revolution? What of Pol Pot, architect of the killing fields? And what about those who torture and kill for pleasure? Here I must admit that I can think of no single explanation to account for the monstrous acts of these people. However, we must recognize two things. Firstly, such people do not come from nowhere, but, within a, but from within a particular society at a particular time and in a particular place. Their actions need to be considered in relation to these circumstances. Secondly, we need to recognize the, whole, the role of the imaginative faculty in their actions. Their schemes were and are carried out in accordance with the vision, albeit a perverted one. Notwithstanding the fact that nothing could justify the suffering they instigate, nothing could justify the suffering they instigated, whatever their explanation might be and whatever positive intentions they could point to, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot each had goals toward which they were working. If we examine those actions which are uniquely human, which animals cannot perform, we find that this imaginative fa faculty plays a vital role. The faculty itself is a unique asset, but the use to which it is put determines whether the actions it conceives are positive or negative, ethical or unethical. The individual's motivation, Kong Long, is thus the governing factor. And whereas a vision properly motivated, which recognizes others' desire for an equal right to happiness and to be free of suffering, can lead to wonders, 
When divorced from basic human feeling, the potential for destruction cannot be overestimated. As for those who kill for pleasure, or worse, for no reason at all, we can only conjecture a deep submergence of the basic impulse toward care and affection for others. Still, this need not mean that it is entirely extinguished. As I pointed out earlier, except perhaps in the most extreme cases, it is possible to imagine even these people appreciating between being shown affection. The disposition remains. Actually, the reader does not need to accept my, accept my proposition that human nature is basically disposed toward love and compassion to see that the capacity for empathy which underlies it is of crucial importance when it comes to ethics. We saw earlier how an ethical act is a non-harming act, but how are we to determine whether an act is generally non-harming? We find that in, in practice, if we are not able to connect with others to some extent, if we cannot at least imagine the potential impact of our actions on others, then we have no means to discriminate between right and wrong, between what is appropriate and what is not, between harming and non-harming. It follows, therefore, that if we could enhance the capacity, that is to say, our sensitivity towards others' suffering, the more we did so, the less we could tolerate seeing others' pain, and the more we would be concerned to ensure that no action of ours caused harm to others. The fact that we can, indeed, enhance our capacity for empathy becomes obvious when we consider its nature. We experience it mainly as a feeling, and as we all know, to a greater or lesser extent, we can not only restrain our feelings through reasoning, but we can enhance them in the same way. Our desire for objects, perhaps a new car, is enhanced by our, by our turning it over and over in our imagination. Similarly, when, as it were, we direct our mental faculties onto our feelings of empathy, we find that not only can we enhance them, but we can transform them into love and compassion itself. As such, our innate capacity for empathy is the source of that most precious of all human qualities, which in Tibetan we call Nyingje. Now, while generally translated simply as compassion, the term Nyingje has a wealth of meaning that is different to convey succinctly, though, ideas, though the ideas it contains are universally understood. It, con it connotes love, affection, kindness, gentleness, generosity of spirit, and warm-heartedness. It is also used as a term of both sympathy and of endearment. On the other hand, it does not imply pity as the word compassion may. There is no sense of con uh, condescension. On the contrary, Nyingje denotes a feeling of connection with others, reflecting its origins in empathy. Thus, while we might say, I love, you, I love my house, or I have strong feelings of affection for this place, we cannot say I have compassion. For these things, having no feelings themselves, we cannot empathize with objects, we cannot therefore speak of having compassion for them. Although it is clear from this description that Nyingje, or love and compassion, is understood as an emotion, it belongs to that category of emotions which have a more developed cognitive component. Some emotions, such as the revulsion we tend to feel at the sight of blood, are basically instinctual. Others, such as fear of poverty, have this more developed cognitive component. We can thus understand Nyingje in terms of a combination of empathy and reason. We can think of empathy as the characteristic of a very honest person. Reason is that of seven, very honest piece, person. Reason as that of someone who is very practical. When the two are put together, the combination is highly effective. As such, Nyingje is quite different from those random feelings, like anger and lust, which, far from bringing us happiness, only trouble us and destroy our peace of mind. To me, this suggests that by means of sustained reflection on and familiarization with compassion, through rehearsal and practice, we can develop our innate ability to connect with others 
a fact which is of supreme importance given the approach to ethics I have described. The more we develop compassion, the more genuinely ethical our conduct will be. As we have seen, when we act out of concern for others, our behavior toward them is automatically positive. This is because we have no room for suspicion when our hearts are filled with love. It is as if an inner door is open, allowing us to reach out. Having concern for others breaks down the very barrier which inhibit, inhibits healthy interaction with others. And not only that, when our, inter, when our intentions towards others are good, we find that any feelings of shyness or insecurity we may have are greatly reduced. To the extent that we are able to open this inner door, we experience a sense of, a sense of liberation from our habitual preoccupation with self. Paradoxically, we find this gives rise to strong feelings of confidence. Thus, if I may give an example from my own experience, I find that whenever I meet new people and have this positive disposition, there is no barrier between us. No matter who or what they are, whether they have blonde hair or black hair or hair dyed green, I feel that I am simply encountering a fellow human being with the same desire to be happy and to avoid suffering as myself. And I, can f I find I can speak to them as if they were old friends, even at our first meeting, by keeping in mind that ultimately we are all brothers and sisters, that there is no substantial difference between us, that just as I do, all others share my desire to be happy and to avoid suffering, I can express my feelings as readily as to someone I have known in in intimately for years. And not just with a few nice words or gestures, but really heart to heart, no matter what the language barrier. We also find that when we act out of concern for others, the peace this creates in our own hearts brings peace to everyone we associate with. We bring peace to the family, peace to our friends, to the workplace, excuse me, to the community, and so on to the world. Why then would anyone not wish to develop this quality? Could anything be more sublime than that which brings peace and happiness to all? For my own part, the mere ability we human beings have to sing the praises of love and compassion is a most precious gift. Conversely, not even the most skeptical reader could suppose that peace ever comes out comes about as the result of aggressive and inconsiderate, that is to say, unethical behavior. Of course it cannot. I well remember how I learned this particular lesson when I was a small boy in Tibet. One of my attendants, Kenrab Tenzin, had made a pet of, of a small parrot, which he used to feed with nuts. Although he was a rather stern man with bulging eyes and a somewhat forbidding aspect, merely at the sound of his footsteps or of his coughing, this parrot would show signs of excitement. As the bird nibbled from his fingers, Kenrab Tenzin would stroke its head, which appeared to put it in a state of ecstasy. It was very envi I was very envious of this relationship and desired the bird to show me the same friendliness. But when I tried on a few occasions to feed it myself, I failed to get a good response. So I tried poking at it with a stick in the hope of provoking a better reaction. Needless to say, the result was totally negative. Far from forcing it to behave better toward me, the bird took fright. What little prospect of establishing friendly relations there may have been was totally destroyed. I learned thereby that friendships come about not as the result of bullying, but as the result of compassion. The world's major religious traditions each give the development of compassion a key role, because it is both the source and the result of patience, tolerance, forgiveness, and all good qualities. Its importance is can considered to extend from the beginning to the end of the spiritual practice. But even without a religious perspective, love and compassion are clearly of fundamental importance to us all. Given our basic premise that ethical conduct consists in not harming others, it follows that we need to take others' feelings into consideration, the basis for which is our innate capacity for empathy. And as we transform this capacity into love and compassion, 
through guarding against those factors which obstruct compassion and cultivating those conducive to it, so our practice of ethics improves. This, we find, leads to happiness both for ourselves and others. Pretty good stuff, guys. Um, I hope you're all following along pretty well with this. Um, if you have any suggestions or anything, let me know. There's links everywhere. You can find me. Send me a message. I'll see what I can do about fixing it. Um, so next we will read part two. Um, when we get back to this book, part two, chapter six, The Ethic of Restraint. Um, I should have the other book here in a couple days, so look forward to listening to more of that one. Um, and like I said earlier, I'll have, I'll have some other things for you guys to listen to. So um, thanks for listening. I appreciate you guys. Uh, whoever's still listening, uh, we have 100 listens already on this podcast. So I appreciate you guys. Um, keep it going. And that's all I got. Okay, bye.